Chapter 1, The Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Over the years, I have heard dozens of different interpretations of the Second Amendment. For such a short sentence, the meaning is heavily debated among gun owners and gun grabbers. The gun grabbers argue that owning a firearm must be connected to service in the militia, which they claim is the National Guard. Many people also think that the founders were only talking about muskets and not AR-15s. For years, I didn't know the answer to these questions until I read the U.S. Supreme Court case, District of Columbia versus Heller. Heller was a D.C. special policeman who wanted to keep a handgun at his home. The problem is D.C. banned handgun possession by making it a crime to carry an unregistered firearm and prohibited the registration of handguns. Typical government bureaucracy. The police chief could issue a one-year license, which required Heller to keep his firearm unloaded and disassembled. What's the point of having a gun at home if the gun is disassembled? Heller filed suit, and in June of 2008, the Second Amendment and law-abiding gun owners received a massive victory. I'm going to take some time to review how the United States Supreme Court U.S.S.C., interpreted the Second Amendment, why the Founding Fathers feared a tyrannical government, what firearms the Founders were referring to, and finally, the purpose of the Second Amendment. I'm going to do this because it is so important for gun owners to understand our rights and what the Second Amendment really is. I'll be including clips from the USSC opinion with page references, and I highly suggest that you take some time to read the entire DC versus Heller decision by visiting www.floridaconcealedcarrylaw.com. Does the Second Amendment guarantee an individual right or a right connected to service in the militia? One of the most common objections to the Second Amendment is that the right to possess firearms is only protected for people serving in the militia, which the gun grabbers refer to as the National Guard. According to the USSC, this is not accurate. Right of the people. The first salient feature of the operative clause is that it codifies a right of the people. The unamended Constitution and the Bill of Rights uses the phrase right of the people two other times in the First Amendment's Assembly and Petition Clause and in the Fourth Amendment's Search and Seizure Clause. The Ninth Amendment uses similar terminology. The emuration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. All three of these instances unambiguously refer to individual rights, 
not collective rights or rights that may be exercised only through participation in some corporate body. The people, the term unambiguously refers to all members of the political community, not a unspecified subset. District of Columbia versus Heller, page five. This statement should show that the founders viewed the right to possess firearms as an individual right. It is strengthened by four state constitutions created before the U.S. Constitution was ratified. Pennsylvania's Declaration of Rights of 1776 said that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. In 1777, Vermont adopted the identical provision except for inconsequential differences in punctuation and capitalization. North Carolina also codified a right to bear arms in 1776, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the state. In 1780, Massachusetts Constitution presented Another variation on the theme, the people have a right to keep and bear arms for the common defense. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 28. If owning firearms is an individual right, what does a well-regulated militia mean? Think back to when the founders were living. Britain was a powerful government oppressing the rights of the American colonies. The founding fathers didn't like the fact that the government was so powerful. Many were opposed to the idea of a standing army for fear that it would one day be turned against the people. Instead, the founding fathers believed that the people would be the first line of defense against insurrection or invasion. In United States versus Miller, we explained that the militia comprised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 22. The founders believe that all men between the ages of 18 to 45 who were physically capable were members of the militia. It was up to these men to be the first line of defense against enemy attack. Unlike armies and navies, which Congress is given the power to create, to raise armies, to provide a navy, Article 1, Subsection 8, the militia is assumed by Article 1 already to be in existence. Congress is given the power to provide for calling forth the militia, and the power not to create, but to organize it, and not to organize a militia, which is what one would expect if the militia were to be a federal creation, but to organize the militia connoting a body already in existence. This is fully consistent with the ordinary definition of the militia as all able-bodied men. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 23. Doesn't well-regulated mean highly regulated or restricted? The gun grabbers love the term well-regulated. 
because in their view, they see it as permission to impose burdensome rules, restrictions, and laws on law-abiding gun owners. The U.S. Supreme Court has a different interpretation. Finally, the adjective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 23. Well, gun grabbers, your number one talking point just got demolished. In the famous words of comedian Dave Chappelle, I guess you'll just have to shut the f*** up. If the Second Amendment is about individual rights, why does it say security of a free state? Part of the argument the gun grabbers use is that the Second Amendment guarantees the right of the militia, who, in their opinion, is the National Guard, to protect their state. Security of a free state. The phrase security of a free state meant security of a free politely, not security of each of the several states. Joseph Story, side note, he's a former U.S. Supreme Court justice, wrote in his treatise on the Constitution that the word state is used in various senses and in its most enlarged sense, it means the people composing a particular nation or community. It is true that the term state elsewhere in the Constitution refers to individual states, but the phrase security of a free state and close variations seem to have been terms of art in the 18th century political discourse, meaning a free country or free politely. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 24. Vocabulary.com defines the term politely as a political group of any size or shape. It can be a government, a state, a county, or even a social group. The two that make the most sense are free country or free society. Again, this is just my opinion, but if it was true, the Second Amendment could more clearly read a well-trained group of men being necessary to the security of a free society, the right of the people to keep and bear firearms shall not be infringed. What does it mean to keep and bear arms? One of the most highly contested points of the Second Amendment is the type of firearms the founders intended to protect. Some argue that only muskets are safeguarded and not modern firearms like an AR-15 or AK-47. The founders were not stupid. They knew technology would improve over time, and so would the types of arms Americans would own. Before addressing the verbs keep and bear, we interpret their object, arms. The 18th century meaning is no different from the meaning today. The 1773 edition of Samuel Johnson's Dictionary defined arms as weapons of offense or armor of defense. Timothy Cunningham's important 1771 legal dictionary defined arms as anything that a man wears for his defense or takes into his hands or useth in wrath to cast at or strike another. District of Columbia versus Heller, page seven.
Some have made the argument bordering on the fervacious that only those arms in existence in the 18th century are protected by the Second Amendment. We do not interpret constitutional rights that way. Just as the First Amendment protects modern forms of communications and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of search. The Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 8. Thankfully, our constitutional rights are not limited to the technology of the 18th century. If this were true, we would have a First Amendment right to freedom of speech, but only in face-to-face communications or handwritten letters, and not via text, social media, video, or even over the phone. So this means that the Second Amendment protects my AR-15, AK-47, and many other firearms in the same way as it does my muzzle-loading pistol. Keep and bear arms. We turn to the phrases keep arms and bear arms. Johnson defined keep as most relevantly to retain, not to lose, and to have in custody. Johnson, 1995. Webster defined it as to hold, to retain in one's power or possession. No party has appraised us of an idiomatic meaning of keep arms. Thus, the most natural meaning of keep arms in the Second Amendment is to have weapons. District of Columbia versus Heller, page eight. Bear. If you guys are a fan of Family Guy, you've probably remember the scene where the founding fathers are discussing how every American has the right to hang a pair of bear arms on their wall. It's a pretty funny sketch, but I don't think that's an accurate interpretation of what the founding fathers meant by bear arms. In numerous instances, bear arms was unambiguously used to refer to the carrying of weapons outside of an organized militia. The most prominent examples are those most relevant to the Second Amendment. Nine state constitutional provisions written in the 18th century or the first two decades of the 19th, which enshrined a right of citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state or bear arms in defense of himself and the state. It is clear from those formulations that bear arms did not refer only to carrying a weapon in an organized military unit. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 11 and 12. Once again, it appears that the term bear arms refers to an individual's right to possess and carry a weapon independent of the individual's service in the militia. Keep and bear arms. Now that we've broken down each element into the original meaning, we're going to see what the U.S. Supreme Court has to say about the connected term keep and bear arms. Putting all of these textual elements together, we find that they guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. 
This meaning is strongly confirmed by the historical background of the Second Amendment. We look to this because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment, like the First and Fourth Amendments, codified a pre-existing right. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 19. The Founding Fathers didn't believe the right to possess firearms was granted by the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, or the government. Instead, they thought that it was a pre-existing right given to all people by our Creator. As we said in United States versus Cruikshank, this is not a right guaranteed by the Constitution. Neither is it in any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment declares that it shall not be infringed. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 19. Does the government have a right to infringe or regulate the Second Amendment? This topic is where some gun owners begin to disagree. Some claim that all firearms laws are illegal and are in direct violation of the U.S. Constitution, while others believe that the Second Amendment, like all other amendments, is not unlimited. Like most rights, the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever, or for whatever purpose. For example, concealed weapons prohibitions have been upheld under the amendment and state analogs. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Miller's holding that the sorts of weapons protected are those in common use at the time, finds support in the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. District of Columbia versus Heller, page two. It's important to note the phrase in common use at the time, because this is the legal basis for why the AR-15 is protected by the Second Amendment. This statement is also the reason why the National Firearms Act was passed in 1934, to restrict so-called dangerous and unusual weapons not in common use at the time, such as machine guns, short barrel rifles, short barrel shotguns, silencers, and destructive devices. There seems to us no doubt, based on both text and history, that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. Of course, the right was not unlimited, just as the First Amendment's right of free speech was not. Thus, we do not read the Second Amendment to protect the right of citizens to carry arms for any sort of confrontation, just as we do not read the First Amendment to protect the right of citizens to speak for any purpose. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 22. Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. 
From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. For example, the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment and state analogous. Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 54 and 55. The problem that I have with all of this is that the Second Amendment is the only amendment in the Bill of Rights that says shall not be infringed. Here are a few definitions I found for infringed. U.S. Supreme Court, D.C. versus Heller, page 40. Curtailed or broken in upon in the smallest degree. Here's what dictionary.com says infringed means. To commit a breach or infraction of, violate or transgress, to encroach or trespass. If the Founding Fathers truly believe that our right to own firearms should not be curtailed or restricted, even to the smallest degree, why are states like New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Maryland allowed to pass such strict firearms laws? Why the Second Amendment was created. Recently, a student of mine asked me why I needed to own an AR-15. I responded by telling her that I don't need an AR-15. I need 12. She wasn't very thrilled by my response. She went on to say that the Second Amendment was created for self-defense and for hunting. You don't need an AR-15 for self-defense or hunting, she stated boldly. First of all, The Second Amendment is not about hunting or even self-defense. The Founding Fathers had three reasons for an individual's right to own firearms. First, of course, it is useful in repelling invasions and suppressing insurrections. Second, it renders large standing armies unnecessary. Third, When the able-bodied men of a nation are trained in arms and organized, they are better able to resist tyranny. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 24. During World War II, a Japanese general was asked why they chose not to launch a ground attack on America. 
There would be a rifle behind every blade of grass, the general replied. Unlike many of the countries in the world, you can't just invade America because you wouldn't only be fighting the U.S. military. You would have millions of veterans and sheepdogs just like me standing on the front lines defending our communities from attack. The final reason for the Second Amendment is by far the most powerful in my opinion. When the able-bodied men of a nation are trained in arms and organized, they are better able to resist tyranny. You see, without firearms, we are slaves who must bow down to the winds of an overreaching government. That history showed the way tyrants had eliminated a militia consisting of all able-bodied men was not by banning the militia, but only by taking away the people's arms, enabling a select militia or standing army to suppress political opponents. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 25. Why did the founding fathers fear a tyrannical government? Did they somehow look into the future and see how world leaders would strip the right to bear arms from their citizens and commit genocide? Or was it because they knew the best way to predict the future was to look at the past? Between the Restoration and the Glorious Revolution, the Stuart Kings, Charles II, and James II succeeded in using select militias loyal to them to suppress political dissentants, in part by disarming their opponents. Under the usurpsies of the 1671 Game Act, for example, the Catholic James II had ordered general disarmaments of regions home to his Protestant enemies. These experiences caused Englishmen to be extremely wary of concentrated military forces run by the state and to be jealous of their arms. They accordingly obtained an assurance from William and Mary in the Declaration of Right, which was codified as the English Bill of Rights, that Protestants would never be disarmed, that the subjects, which are Protestants, may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. This right has long been understood to be the predecessor of our Second Amendment. District of Columbia versus Heller, pages 19 and 20. Thus, the right secured in 1689 as a result of the Stuart's abuses was by the time of the founding understood to be an individual right protecting against both public and private violence. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 21. And of course, what the Stuarts had tried to do to their political enemies, George III had tried to do to the colonists in the tumultuous decades of the 1760s and 1770s, the crown began to disarm the inhabitants of the most rebellious areas. That provoked polemical reactions by Americans invoking their rights as Englishmen to keep arms. A New York article of April 1769 said that 
It is a natural right which the people have reserved to themselves, confirmed by the Bill of Rights to keep arms for their own defense. District of Columbia versus Heller, page 21. Throughout history, kings and governments have abused their power to kill and suppress their people. It happened before the creation of the Bill of Rights. It happened during the American Revolution. It happened in the 1800s to freed black slaves so that they could be recaptured and enslaved. Gun control has been at the heart of every evil act committed in modern history. In World War II, Nazi-controlled Germany seized guns from the population, and shortly after that, the Holocaust began, leading to the death of over 4 million Jews. Hitler wasn't the only leader to use gun control to consolidate power and control his people. Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, and Fidel Castro have all used gun control to strip their citizens from their God-given right to possess firearms. As you know, these gun confiscations have led to the murder of close to 100 million people. The gun grabbers, they laugh at the claim that a tyrannical government might one day appear in America. Why is it so hard to imagine? History tends to repeat itself. So why would this be any different? Thank God the founding fathers had enough forethought to see that evil is real. And some politicians are not working for the good of the people, but their own gain. We must do everything we have to and protect the rights of the people from evil tyrants who seek to deny us our God-given rights.